Well, here we are on the fourth Sunday of Advent, and as Evan mentioned earlier, tomorrow night's service will be a full-on Christmas Eve service. It'll be different than today. I know a lot of churches kind of do a package deal where Sunday and Christmas Eve, it's all going to be the same. You just pick which um, uh, service to come to. Not the case for us here at New Life. We're decided to do separate things. And so um, tomorrow night, it's supposed to be beautiful. It's supposed to, we're supposed to get just a teeny little bit of snow, maybe, you know. We'll have our LED candles in here as we sing Silent Night. It's just, yeah, you're not going to want to miss it. Uh, it's truly going to be historic one way or another. Um, on the fourth Sunday of Advent, traditionally the theme is love. And so you can see in the songs that we've been singing and even in the scriptures that we've read this morning, we've talked a little bit or hinted at this theme already. And I, I think it's possible to sort of imagine this theme as a very simple one and, and to say, well, hey, church, good morning, everybody. I just, I'm here to tell you today that God is love. And you say, wow, wonderful. It's sort of a Sunday school lesson. Well, it is family Sunday. Um, but, but the truth is, it's not as simple as a, of a lesson as you might imagine because I suspect that we have great trouble really believing this. And here's what I mean by this. When it comes down to it, I suspect that when we really are asked or forced to answer the question, what is God like? Most of us in the heat of the battle, in the thick of our suffering, most of us resort to a picture of God that is tribal and punitive, retributive, a God who says, well, you did this, so I'm going to do that. Most of us know how to say the right things and to say, well, God is love and we know that God is love and for God so loved the world. It was our gospel reading this morning, deliberately in a different translation so that it would snap you out of, you know, the memory of it that you have. But I suspect that if we really kind of are honest with ourselves in the moment of crisis, the way we act, the way we talk about God, the way we pray maybe, reveals a belief in a God that is anything but loving. Last week's tragedy was yet another example of this, where leading Christian voices took to the airwaves to announce to, the, to America that this happened because, after all, we've sinned, and that God has moved, removed His protective hand, and so therefore this is judgment, this is punishment. There's all sorts of problems with a statement like that, not least of which is the comparison of America to Old Testament Israel. But the real heart of that problem is it shows that we still, in the moment of our fear and suffering, believe that we have a tribal God, a God who's angry, a God who's vindictive, a God who can't wait to punish. We know how to sing the songs and read the scriptures. We know how to give the Sunday school answers. But in the moment of your suffering, we all tend to act like God is not love. And maybe this is as old as the Garden of Eden itself. Because right away, once the fall happens, Adam and Eve sin by eating of the fruit from the tree. The storyteller tells us, what does it say that they begin to do right away? They hid. Would you hide from a God who you believe is truly loving? Or would you hide from a God who you suspect, you fear, deep in the bottom of your hearts, is really a vindictive, judgmental God? What kind of a God image do you have when you cower in the garden to hide? But see, God comes looking for Adam. I think if you were to trace back the stories of the first few chapters of Genesis 
and scroll back in your minds the memories that you had. Maybe in Sunday school classes when I was a kid, it was flannel graph, you know, flannel boards, you know, and the teacher would always have one figure that couldn't, wouldn't quite stick on the board, you know, and all of us kids would be like, <coughs> not, not me, of course, I was paying close attention to the list. But think back to the stories even from the beginning and and tell me what kind of God it shows you. As soon as Adam and Eve sin, does God say, Icky sin! I can't touch Adam. I can't touch Eve. I'm so holy. And you're so sinful. So, Ick! Or does the Genesis storyteller tell us that when Adam and Eve sin, God comes in the garden looking for him. In fact, the very first question in the Bible is God looking for man and he says, Adam, where are you? Where are you? This is a God whose response to our sin is to come and seek us out. This is a God whose very response to our rebellion from the beginning is not to say, you... This is a God whose very response to sin is to say, all right, where are you? Where are you? What have you done? What have you done? Adam, where are you? And Adam hides. And maybe you say, well, what about the flood story, Glenn? I mean, surely that was judgment, sure enough. And there are many ancient mythologies about a flood and about gods who had gotten angry. You know what's most remarkable about the Christian or the the Jewish flood story, the Moses flood story that we get in Genesis? It's not so much that there was a flood. Do you know what's remarkable about the flood story? It's the great lengths that God goes to to preserve his creation. Think about it. Is the point of the flood story that God got mad and sent a flood, or is the point of the flood story that God preserved the family? Gave him instructions to build a boat. Asked him to bring animals, male and female. Why? So that after this discipline was over, there would be, that creation would perpetuate again. You might say that the overarching theme so far in Genesis is not the judgment of God, but the way that God finds a way to bring salvation. You might say that already in the early chapters of Genesis, the prevailing theme is not that God looks at sin and says, Ick, but that God looks at sin and says, All right, I'm going to do something about this, but in the end, I'm going to work salvation. Which trumps which? Does God's anger trump God's love, or does God's love always find a way to win? What is fundamentally true about God? Is God fundamentally an angry God who through the whole course of the Old Testament has taken enough anger management courses? By the time Jesus shows up, he says, okay, all right. I was, ang- I was an angry father in my younger days, but now I'm a kind old gentleman, old grandfather. Or has God always been the God of love? We know the story of God calling Abraham You wouldn't call Abraham, who according to legend is the son of an idol maker, you wouldn't call Abraham if you were a God that was afraid of working with messy people. Let me ask you a question. Does God work His salvation in the world from outside or from within? 
Does God work his salvation in the world from outside, sort of throwing gospel tracts at the world? (laughs) Or does God find a family on the inside? A flawed family, to be sure. A family that, that comes from generations of idol makers and idol worshipers. And all of a sudden, God says, Abraham, it starts with you. I'm choosing you. Sorry, Harrison. I'm choosing you. He says, why me? Don't you know my family's a mess? He says, I know, but I don't care. I've chosen you. I'm starting something new today. We've talked about this several times in here, but the Old Testament kind of takes us right up to the edge of the cliff because we know how good of a job, quote-unquote, Abraham's family did with carrying out God's purposes, right? They're unfaithful, notoriously unfaithful. And by the time we get to the beginning of the Gospels, the question that is maybe on everybody's hearts and minds is, Have we done too much? This is it, right? We've done too much. Would God finally wash His hands of His people? Would God finally say, Okay, I've had it. I counted till ten, and I'm still angry. (laughs) Is this God waiting a couple thousand years and saying, I've waited, I've waited, You're still unfaithful. You're still messing around with idols. You're still doing this. You're still doing that. Okay, judgment is coming. When the God of Israel finally acts, what is true about Him? Does He act in a way that is vindictive? Or does He act in a way that is loving? This is a massive question because this is not just a question that... The, the people in the, on the cusp of the turn of the first century were, were interested in. It's a question we're all very much interested in. If God were to act, if God were to show up, if God were to come, we're talking about Advent and arrival. And the question is, is God? how is God going to be when He arrives? Is He going to be like that unwanted family member, relative, you know? Holly and I attempted for the... I don't know, third time to finally watch, you know, Christmas Vacation. Um, and we still never made it through. It was like the iTunes rental stopped and anyway, it expired. And so I, to this day, I've never watched the movie all the way through. We, we just stopped, though, at the part where the drunk uncle shows up, you know. At the, it crashes the party. I don't know if he's drunk. Anyway. Is this the nervousness that we have? God's coming, but what's he going to do? God's arriving, but what will he do? Luke chapter 1 is the story of the angel appearing to Mary and saying to her, look, this is what's going to happen. And listen, God has chosen you and you're going to be the handmaiden of the Lord. You will bring the Son. And He tells, him that, 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 or tells her that, that you're, this is going to be the Son of God, servant of the Son of the Most High, and He'll reign over the house of Jacob. Basically, this angel is telling Mary that, look, God is coming at last. And He's coming to save. He's coming to rescue. And Mary sings this beautiful song. In church tradition, it's gone on and been called the Magnificat. And pick it up with me in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. 
And in case there's any mystery here, this is not Mary calling herself humble. This is an old English way of saying, I'm lowly. My humble estate. He's looked on me in my unworthiness, in my lowliness. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him. If you're the underlining type, that's the sentence to underline. His mercy is for those who fear Him. From generation to generation, He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. This is where Mary's song, I think last year during one of the Advent services, I said Mary's song is is less kind of a sweet Christmas carol and more like Rage Against the Machine. Because this is kind of a war hymn. This This is a revolutionary hymn. This is Mary saying, all right, all of you who were proud and lofty, who trusted in riches, who oppressed the poor, all of you who sat on your thrones at the expense of others, all of you who exploited the, 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 the lowly, now you're gonna get it. And then she says, and there's gonna be this reversal and those who are low will be brought up. I told you that, that um, I was not always the um, studly guy that I am today. And that in middle school, I may or may not have gotten picked on a couple times on the playground. One particular time involved being put in a headlock, you know, for no apparent reason. And uh, I was always, I was very glad when the teacher finally came out onto the playground that day because it meant that this was going to be over. The nightmare was over. Um, And I, I, I think your perspective of whether it's good news that God is coming as king, your perspective on that changes whether or not you're the bully who's going to get it, or the kid who's been picked on who's saying, finally, at last. And Israel, this is why it's tricky for us, because as American Christians, we're used to kind of reading the scriptures from being Christians in a place of strength and influence and power and prestige and all of this stuff. But you have to remember that Israel in, in this moment is this marginalized, picked on bully, picked on by Assyria and Babylon and Greeks and later now Rome. And, and Mary's sitting here saying, okay, God, will you... And, and the angel comes and says, yes, he's come. And she says, at last, you're going to get it. <laughs> and we're going to be lifted up. And she says, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. There's that word again. You can circle it. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is Mary saying, His mercy is for those who fear Him. I like the way Eugene Peterson kind of paraphrases that verse, that particular verse. He says, His mercy flows in wave after wave on those who desire Him. Wave after wave. Maybe the first wave is this, that in God's mercy, He sees us. In God's mercy, He sees us. Maybe for some of you this morning, the first thing to know about God is that He sees you. Maybe for some of you, the first thing to know about God is that regardless of your situation or your behavior or your track record, that God sees you. That you're not forgotten. 
think it's easy after enough times of failing or after enough times of having things come apart in your life. It's easy to sort of imagine that surely God doesn't even see me. I must be invisible to you, God, because you're, you're, you know, you're doing stuff for them and them and them, but me, not me, because everything's kind of coming apart. Is it possible that there's no person that's too low for God to see? Is it possible that there's no person that is too far down the rung that God sort of overlooks you? You know, Matthew's gospel begins with a genealogy, and if, if you're like me, you probably skip that part of chapter 1. But what would happen if you skipped it is you'd miss that Matthew finds a way of weaving in a very, it's a very theological genealogy. How historically accurate, that's debatable. But Matthew's working a theological point. He works in four women into this genealogy, each of them with questionable past. Each of them outside the Jewish line. How do women who are non-Jewish with questionable morals and a shady past find themselves in the story of Jesus' arrival? And maybe Matthew's doing it because he follows up that genealogy with a story about another young girl with a questionable story. Mary, who finds herself pregnant out of wedlock. Maybe the point the gospel writers want us to see right away is that in God's mercy, He sees us. He sees us. Can we really believe that there's no story that's too far outside of God's reach? There's no failure, no fracture, no unfaithfulness too great for God to say, if you would give it back to me, I can put this back together. In God's mercy, He sees us. But it's more than that, isn't it? Mary says, look, you showed the strength of your arm. In God's mercy, He shows His strength. And it's not, it's not good enough to be merciful if you can't do anything about it, right? Imagine, you know, I imagine myself sometimes because I'm not super handy with mechanical things and whatnots. Imagine, you know, somebody's car, if your car broke down after church today and, and I stopped and I saw you, I would have a lot of mercy for you, but no strength to actually help you. Just going to throw that out there. It's good to be merciful, but not near as good as being merciful and strong enough to save. What we find in God is not just a God who says, wow, I'm sorry about that. Boy, that's a mess. I see you. I hear you. Thank you. <laughs> and I know our counselors have taught us, you know, that it's very important that we validate each other and say, I hear you and I see you, because we are more powerless to save each other from their messes. But God's not that way, is He? God's not like your you know, sweet, kind person who sort of says, oh, I see you, I hear you, and I'm so sorry. Okay, should we sing a song now? God's the God who not only is full of mercy, but is strong enough to show His strength. 
God comes to us, Mary says, to scatter the proud, bring down the mighty, and to lift up the humble and fill the hungry. Imagine this. Imagine this. But maybe after so much time, it might have been hard for others to believe. Zacharias, after all, he he gets a similar visitation from an angel, but Zacharias has a harder time believing this. Mary says, how can this be? And then she finishes up with, be it unto me. Zacharias is sort of the, how will I know? Uh, There's no way. I need proof. I need a sign. God says, I'll give you a sign. You're not going to be able to speak for a while. How's that for a sign? We can't fault him because maybe it's what happens to us when we get older. Mary is this young gal and she hears this promise from an angel and she's overjoyed. She bursts into song. But maybe a funny thing happens to us as we move on from childhood on to adulthood and older in life. If you're Zacharias and Elizabeth, you've, you've just experienced too much disappointment in life. They've been barren. They've wanted kids forever. Don't come telling me now we're going to have a kid. I've seen too much. And maybe that's what some of you are like this morning. It's good and fine to, to, to look at our children and say to, to our children, God loves you. Jesus loves you. Little Jonas, our son, he's three. About all he knows is that Jesus saved him. He's not quite sure from what yet. You know, but every time he hears the name Jesus, Dad, Jesus saved me. I'm like, that's true, buddy. He did. It's like, ah, that's awesome, you know. So excited. Then you become... Not three, but 43, 53, 63. Somewhere along the way in life, you begin to say, well, he saved me, he loves me. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, if he really did, then why these disappointments in my life? Why this and why this and why this and how come that and how come this and how come this? And it gets harder and harder to really believe that. That's why this message this morning. To say, alright God, could you give us fresh eyes? Could you give us the eyes of a child again to see and believe that God is love? How do we know what God is really like? How do we know? How do we know what this God is truly like? So, well, the Bible. Sure. There's a better answer than that, believe it or not. It's Jesus. Jesus, the Bible testifies of Him. Jesus, the Scriptures say, is the revelation of God. John says, and now we've beheld the glory, the glory of the only begotten. It's Jesus, full of grace and truth. It's because of Jesus that we know what God is like And what we see in Jesus is that God is love. Really, you would say that God has always been the kind of God that would send Jesus. Part of our problem, and I've said this many times, is because we have this tendency to sort of separate Old Testament God, New Testament God. Well, he was that way then, and then something sort of changed, then Jesus came, and now he's different. But we kind of have in the back of our minds, is God going to revert? What if he has a relapse? I've got better news for you. God has always been this God. Always. 
always been this God. He was not one way in the Old Testament and then the new way with Jesus. He has always been this God. God was always the God who would send Jesus. How do we know? Think about what the Old Testament says about Him. Think about how even in the garden, God comes looking for Adam. The Old Testament reading this morning was from Exodus 34. It's Moses pleading with Yahweh, saying, God, show me your glory. So what does God show Moses? A goosebump charismatic worship experience? Gold dust? <laughs> Uh-oh. Now I'm messing with you. What does God show Moses? Show me your glory, God! Okay, have an adrenaline rush, Moses. Have a worship high, Moses. No, no, no. You know what he gives Moses? A picture into what he's like. He says, all right, I'm going to say the name. The name, the name. Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord. Abounding in compassion, slow to anger. Abounding in mercy. And then we heard it read, he doesn't leave sin unpunished. He'll punish sin and he'll visit it. This phrase, by the way, of visiting sins third through fourth generations is not... Oh, should I mess with you a bit more this morning? Can I? Can I challenge you a bit? Because we've got some hokey, superstitious things. This visiting the sin third through fourth generations is not about generational curses. It's about God saying, you're going to end up reaping the consequences of these decisions eventually into exile. Deuteronomy, Exodus, all these books were written after the time of exile. And so it's, it's Israel's way of saying, you know why we got sent into exile? Because three to four generations were turned away from obeying God. And it took us that long to finally repent and come back. It's not some weird hex thing that God puts on His people, like a, like a you know, European family, a fairy tale where it was like God turned into a witch and cast a spell on you, you know? And we were waiting for the Prince Charming Jesus to show up and give us the kiss of life. Gross. <laughs> this is God saying, listen, there will be a discipline moment, but the discipline will not last forever. He says, but I show love for a thousand generations, which is a Hebrew way of saying forever. One of the favorite songs that Israel used to sing was a song that says, your anger will last for a moment, but your favor will last a lifetime. One of the other songwriters, he used to sing a lot of sad songs in the key of D minor, all written in the book of Lamentations. And one of the songs he sang, he says, look, it's by the Lord's mercy that we are not consumed. Great is His faithfulness. Every morning His mercies are new. What is God fundamentally like? He's always been a God whose mercy outlasts His anger. Always been a God whose mercy outlasts His anger. Now think about that. Maybe one of the ways to say it is this. God in His holiness has to deal with sin. He can't leave it be. But because God in His essence is love, 
And anger is an emotion. Think in your mind of the difference between essence and emotion. God in His essence is not anger. God in His essence is love. But it is His love and His holiness that fuels an anger sometimes about our sin, about our destructiveness, about our love for our own rebellion. So what's God going to do? This is why I say that in Jesus we see that God is love. Because in Jesus, God's righteous and just judgment of sin and God's love for humanity meet. How do they meet? They meet because Jesus says, I have come to carry the sins of the world. The old poet prophet Isaiah said it this way. He said, the punishment that brought us peace was put on Jesus. Think of that. For God to be just, He can't just sort of ignore sin or let it be. He has to be the God that deals with it. But how would He deal with it and still save humanity? It's Jesus. Church, this is the gospel that we believe. That God, because God is love, He finds a way. It's because Jesus, He who knew no sin, Paul wrote, became sin, that we can become this very righteousness of God. Jesus stands in for Israel, stands in for all of Israel's unfaithfulness, and with Israel stands in for all of humanity and all of our sin, and takes upon Himself the weight of our punishment so that blessing and mercy can flow to all. Think of that, church. Think of it. The greatest news there is. It's in this way that God's mercy triumphs over judgment. It's in this way that love wins. Not because God has a definition of love that sort of closes an eye, wink, wink, okay, okay, fine. But it's because Jesus came. That means for us, if you are in Christ, God's mercy and blessing abounds to you. Paul had kind of a twist on Mary's song, and Mary says, you've taken the lowly and caused us to be seated up high. You know what Paul says in the first chapter of Ephesians? He says, we've been ransomed by the blood of Christ, we've been purchased, we've been redeemed. And then he goes on and he says, look, and we've now been blessed with every spiritual blessing, seated with Christ in heavenly places, there's no seat higher than that seat. The miracle of the arrival of Jesus means that all of us who were lowly, who were weak, who were stuck, who feared that we'd been forgotten, who wondered if we'd been too unfaithful, who were convinced that God this time had washed His hands of us, the miracle of Jesus' arrival is that we know the truth about God. God has shown Himself, who has always been, is, and ever will be, the God of love. The God who has made a way for us to be saved. The God who begins to bring everything back together. Tomorrow night I'll preach from the next song, not Zacharias' song, but the song after that, Simeon's song. And talk to us about this salvation. I think the point 
in Mary's song is, where do you find yourself? Because if you find yourself to be the strong and the mighty that clings and trusts in your position or your power or any of that, it's going to be a bad day. It's far better to say, all right, (laughs) I admit it, I got nothing, I'm empty, I am lowly, I never wanted to admit this. I mean, think how opposite of the flow of our culture this is. Because our culture tells us, show yourself to be strong, never show weakness, always be strong. How's business? Wonderful! How's the family? Excellent! It's only in the moments where we say, how are things? Things are bleak. How are things? I'm not sure. How are things? I need God. I need Jesus. And in that moment, you see the marvelous good news. God has come. He's come to you. He's here. He came to do for you what you could never do for yourself, to be for you what you could never be by yourself. Jesus came to show us once and for all, God is love. You don't have to live your life cowering in the fear of if I forgot to say this prayer or that prayer, if I forgot to do this thing or that thing, I'm under a curse. We didn't pray, I didn't do my quiet time this morning. My day is not blessed. So many of you are Christians, but you live under the fear of a retributive God, a retributive God, a God that is punitive and tribal and angry. Luther said, for any of us who see God as angry, we have pulled a curtain over God's face. We've pulled a dark cloud over God's face. Luther, he says, for all of us who are in Christ, we have found a gracious God. Friends, it's the simplest and yet most profound truth there is. The God who sent Jesus has always been love. The God who came in Christ sealed for us our place, seated up high, not down low. Seated up high, not down low. Why? Because you've been faithful enough, you've been good enough, you've been nice and not naughty this Christmas. I mean, the whole Santa version of God is eerie, isn't it? I've tried to watch like kids shows, kids Christmas shows with my children and I'm like, they're trying to make this a metaphor for God. But that's not what God's like. (laughs) The great toy maker who's trying to see if we've been naughty or nice. The man in the sky with a beard checking his list. (laughs) Or the God who knew that we would never be good enough on our own. The God who in the garden came looking for Adam. The God who in the garden 
provided clothing, garments for a man and woman who found themselves to be naked in their sin. A God who called Abraham out of darkness and out of his family's life. The God who comes to us in Jesus Christ in the middle of our darkest night. The God who is the Word who becomes flesh. The God whom John says, Jesus, full of grace and truth. The God who, while we were yet sinners, died for us. The God who let judgment fall on His Son so that mercy might flow to you and to me. This God is love. And this love has come to you. Do you believe it, church? Maybe to help you believe it, we're going to take a cue from our children. Kids, if you're here this morning, come on down. i got a story to read to you. You can come and sit on the floor. It'll be chaotic, but it's planned chaos. That makes it a little better. Come on down, everybody. Just come sit. Yeah. Hi, Abby Grace. Hi. Hi, Jonas. How you doing, buddy? I was just telling everybody about you. Hello, Sophia. Hi. Hi, Cadence. Hey, Nora. Keaton. Very good, guys. All right. I'm going to read out of a Bible here called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And uh, parents, if you've never... How many of you have this Bible, the Jesus Storybook Bible? It's marvelous. Here, I'm going to scoot back a bit. And if you don't have it, I recommend it. Actually, I I recommend it for kids of all ages. It's a wonderful way to get a glimpse of the the meta-narrative, the big story of God's salvation. All right, kids. No more big words like meta-narrative. You ready? Okay. (laughs) I just can't help myself. All right. This is called He's Here. It's based on the stories in Luke 1 and 2, okay? Can you see this? It's a picture of Bethlehem from the sky. See that? All right. Everything was ready. The moment God had been waiting for was here at last. God was coming to help His people, just as He promised in the beginning. But how would He come? What would He be like? That's what we've been talking about. What would he do? Mountains would have bowed down. Could you imagine? Mountains bowing down. This guy's funny. I know. It's just crazy. Seas would have roared. Have you ever heard the sea roar? Trees would have clapped their hands. Now that'd be fun to see. But the earth held its breath. As silent as snow falling, he came in. And when no one was looking in the darkness, he came. There was a young girl who was engaged to a man named Joseph. Joseph was the great, 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 great grandson of King David. Do you guys remember King David? Yeah, I yeah? remember him. You do? You remember the stories of how he defeated Goliath? That's right, buddy. Someday we'll have to read that story too. One morning, this girl was minding her own business when suddenly a great warrior of light appeared right there in her bedroom. He was Gabriel, and he was an angel, a special messenger from heaven. Now, we don't really know what angels look like, but here's a a drawing. There you go. I can't help myself. I'm sorry. When she saw the tall, shining man standing there, Mary was frightened. I think you might be able to, you know, imagine this bright, shining figure. You don't need to be scared, Gabriel said. God is very happy with you. 
Mary looked around to see if perhaps he was talking to someone else. It's hard to believe that God is really pleased with you, isn't it, kids? But here's this angel saying to Mary, no, I'm talking to you. Mary, Gabriel said, and he laughed with such gladness that Mary's eyes filled with sudden tears. Mary, you're going to have a baby, a little boy, and you will call him Jesus. He's God's own son. He's the one. He's the rescuer. The God who flung planets into space and kept them whirling around and around. The God who made the universe with just a word. The one who could do anything at all was making himself small and coming down as a baby. Wait, wait, wait. God was sending a baby to rescue the world? (laughs) But it's too wonderful, Mary said, and felt her heart beating. How can it be true? Is anything too wonderful for God? Gabriel asked. And so Mary trusted God more than what her eyes could see, and she believed. I am God's servant, she said. Whatever God says, I will do. And so sure enough, it was just as the angel had said. Nine months later, Mary was almost ready to have her baby. And now Mary and Joseph had to take a trip to Bethlehem, the town King David was from. But when they reached the little town, they found every room was full. Every bed was taken. What are they going to (laughs) do? Go away, the innkeepers told them. There isn't any place for you. A little extra biblical addition there. It's all right. Where would they stay? Soon Mary's baby would come, and they couldn't find anywhere except an old tumble-down stable. So they stayed where the cows and the donkeys and the horses stayed. I know. And there in the stable, do you see this picture, guys? See the cow? That's like a... Yeah, okay, we'll go with sheep. Another cow. Yep, there it is. Looks like a horse over there. It's a chicken, I think. Or a bit. Oh, you're right, there's a mouse. There it is. I'm sure sure they were. And a sheep. And there in the stable amongst the chickens and the donkeys and the cows, in the quiet of the night, God gave the world His wonderful gift. The baby that would change the world was born. His baby son. Mary and Joseph wrapped Him up to keep Him warm. They made a soft bed of straw and used the animal's feeding trough as His cradle. And they gazed in wonder at God's great gift. Wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Mary and Joseph named him Jesus. Emmanuel, which means God has come to live with us. Because, of course, he had. All right. Five. All right. Now, kids, here's what I want you to do, okay? We're going to say a little prayer together, and then you're going to go back to your mom and dad, all right? Will you pray with me? Okay. Will you hold your hands out like this and just kind of pray with me? Church, we can all pray this together. Say, Father God, thank you for sending your Son. Thank you for Jesus. Help us to believe that you love us. 
so much that you came to save us. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Off you go. feel like we should give them a hand or something. Good job, kids. Good job. Let's take a moment and maybe, band, if you'll come up on the stage and kind of get ready and play a little bit. Let's just take a moment and, and sit where you are and, and maybe let the Holy Spirit kind of soften your hearts. We're getting ready to come to the communion table. And we do this every week. Not as an afterthought, not as an add-in, not as a you know, dessert to the entree or anything like that. We come to the Lord's table as the main course. We come every Sunday as the way we end our service because we're saying, okay, God, we truly believe. We're coming with empty hands to receive your body and your blood, your grace given to us. So let's let our hearts be still as we pray. And maybe some of you need to pray, God, help me again to believe in a deeper way that you are love, that you are loving God.